0: Welcome to Episode 9 of Painting the Corners, the Baseball and International Affairs Podcast. We have a really a very special episode this week because I was at West Point this week for a conference and I took the opportunity to speak to a couple of people there about baseball and foreign policy. One of my goals and hopes for this podcast is to bring in voices that aren't always heard when talking about either of these topics and I think I succeeded in doing that this week. Let me tell you a little bit about our two guests uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Price is the director of the Combating Terrorism Center and an academy professor in the Dep- Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. He's also a visiting professor of political science at Ryder University. He is also a huge baseball fan and a baseball guy. He has played, coached, and served as an officer representative on West Point's baseball team, and he's done scholarly work on the subject. For example, his article, More Than a Game, Baseball Diplomacy in World War II and the Cold War, that is anthologized in the politics of baseball and McFarland Press publication but it's also a topic that we discuss in some depth and into which lieutenant colonel price really has some insight in our podcast today if you want to hear more from lieutenant colonel brian price go to the website for his organization the center combating terrorism center which is www.ctc.usma.edu and they tweet their twitter handle is at @ctc WP. And I didn't know much about the center. I obviously did some research on the internet and I talked to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Price about the center before I started the podcast, before we talked. And he's a, if you're interested in this subject, this seems like a very good place to go and to learn things and to follow them on Twitter and to listen to what he has to say. And this is a man who is a very smart guy who spent a lot of time talking about a question I think we would all agree is very important to uh, not just America's security, but to a security of a lot of countries. So listen to what he has to say. Our second guest today is Daniel Gibbons. Daniel Gibbons is a left-handed pitcher. He's a junior on the baseball team at West Point, and he's working on international affairs here. He's a student, and it was really great to have him on because he talks about playing baseball as a student-athlete, and not just a student-athlete, but a student-soldier-athlete, and what that means, playing at a Division I program, a rigorous academic school, and at West Point. And he also talks about his own research and his thinking for the future of some of the security challenges facing the United States. Before I go to Brian and Daniel and my discussion, this is the uh, first podcast after the election, and there's a couple things I want to talk about. First of all, there's a lot of articles out there that say, how did the pundits get this all wrong? How did the people projecting get this all wrong? And regardless of whether you supported Donald Trump, or you supported Hillary Clinton, or perhaps one of the minor candidates, I think we should all be able to agree that I got this wrong. And when you get at something this wrong, you should say so. And you should acknowledge that, and you should own that. And I'm giving some thought to the extent to which I lived in an echo chamber, to the extent to which I cherry-picked polls, and to the extent to which I let the wish be the father of the thought. So I just want to recognize that, and I will try to sharpen my analytical abilities based on what I think was a pretty big mistake on my part. I also want to let folks know that I, I hope that we have a range of people's different political opinions who listen to this podcast, but my own opinions are not something I've made any effort to conceal and I am very, very concerned. I have seen my party lose at the polls before. I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan got elected and I'm certainly old enough to remember when George W. Bush got elected. Matter of fact, I worked for Al Gore uh, in that campaign. This is not like that. We're grown-ups here in America. If you're a conservative Republican, or I hope we're grown-ups here, You know that if a Liberal Democrat, if a Barack Obama, if a Hillary Clinton gets elected, you know you're going to get pro-choice judges on the court, you know you're going to get pro-marriage equality judges on the court, and you know you're going to get economic policies that may not uh, favor the rich as much, or may mean slightly higher taxes. And if you are a Liberal Democrat like I am, I know that a Republican president means conservative judges who will not share my views on abortion rights, not share my views on equality in every way for LGBT Americans. That upsets me, but I know that I know that's how America works, and I also accept that we will get cuts to social services for programs and organizations that are important to me. I understand that. That's how America works, and we should all understand that. This is something more than that. This is something more than that. I'm going to try to be concise for two reasons. One, the climate of hate. And if you stop by saying, hey, I didn't feel that, pause a minute. Because I, by virtue of who I am and where I live, I'm surrounded by people who are not all three white, straight, and Christian. And these folks are really here feeling it. I have had people who I haven't talked to in a while telling me how afraid they are, asking me what they should do. And it's not because they're paranoid or crazy. It's because if you are Jewish in America, for example, hypothetically, and you see a rally where people are giving Nazi salutes and chanting Jew and you see the other participants in the rally doing nothing, and you see the candidate doing nothing, that is chilling. If you are a Muslim in America, and you hear talk... About, about exporting, not, uh, deporting people, not letting people in, making people identify themselves as Muslim, that is chilling. And if you are an American in America, regardless of your faith or lack of faith, and you see those things, it should be chilling, because that's not what this great country is or should be about. Similarly, if you are a woman or a girl, and you hear the President-elect of the United States grab him by the genitals, he didn't use the word genitals, but I'm using that word That's horrifying. That is putting a green light on on sexual assault that is horrifying and should be horrifying. So just be aware, regardless of where you are in this election, that many Americans genuinely feel less safe, and it's not something they're faking. They may be wrong. I hope... I am wrong. I hope there are no incidents of violence. I hope there is not an uptick in sexual assault. But that is what people are afraid of, and that fear is real. Secondly, we have a president-elect who, for the first time threatened the democratic institutions that are bedrock to our system and here i'm talking specifically about the press this thing about opening up the libel laws which is authoritarian code for crackdown on free press and that is the core freedom of speech and assembly are the core values the core things on which our democracy rests and then we have institutions and donald trump ran and won the republican nomination largely by destroying the republican party and i'm not making a value judgment there i know i have many friends who thought that was a good thing but this if he turns that attention to destroying other institutions, to undermining legislatures, undermining judiciaries, undermining local governments who may not like his policies, we could have a crisis of democracy. And I really hope we don't go down that road. Before we turn to our discussion, I just want to make a couple of of points about about who I am. If you're wondering, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. My Twitter handle is at Lincoln Mitchell. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, www.lincolnmitchell.com. If you want to reach me about the podcast or anything else, My email is lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, The End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball is now out. It's from Temple University Press. You can get it at Amazon or other places where books are sold online. If you buy it and you read it and you like it, particularly if you like it, please rate and review it at Amazon. The more reviews we have there... The more attention it'll draw, the more people will be reading it. And if you want to interest in the book, there are some reviews up on Amazon, both the ones from the back of the book and also some that readers have, have put up there. And they're generally, I would say, pretty positive. So, so please uh, take a look. If you are in the New York City area, on December 1st, I'm having a book event at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse, www.berginos.com. And to learn more about their, their space, that's at 7 o'clock on December 1st. We'll talk about the book. They will be, I think, light refreshments, and then it's an opportunity to buy the book and buy some of the other great things that they sell at Bergino's, baseball-related. On December eighth at the Baseball Center at Seventy Fourth and Broadway, we'll be having a similar event. This is a little bit bigger facility, so if you're uptown on the Upper West Side or want to come down, I would, I hope, uh, would love to see you there. So I hope uh, that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Daniel and Brian, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you. Daniel, you have a, uh, and sitting in front of you on the table is a World War II issued U.S. Army baseball glove, which we're well, not a video podcast, but it's, it's quite a relic. So um, you have a long relationship both with the U.S. Army and with baseball, yes? Correct, I do. So maybe tell us a little bit, walk us through that, playing baseball
1: here, what your research is now. Sure, so uh, I'm a lifelong baseball player and fan. I was uh, a cadet like Daniel Gibbons was uh, back in the day. Uh, so I graduated here in 1998. Uh, played all four years, uh, co-captain. My actual shortstop is also a professor here now too. What position did you play? I played second base. Oh, so you're hold, the whole double play combination here. Double play combination is uh, in good still hands. Back uh, 20 years later, Fantastic. absolutely. And so uh, I, I was fortunate enough to play here, but then also when I came back as an instructor in uh, 2010, I was able to be a uh, an assistant coach on the team. Uh, and then did another stint in 2013 Uh, and then since then I've been involved with uh, with the team as an officer representative Uh, but it's also I've been interested in baseball as an academic as well and so I was a U.S. history major here and was able to write my senior thesis on uh, on baseball as a uh, foreign policy tool used uh, after World War II. So this is very very interesting. First of all this is if you're
0: interested in baseball in U.S. history. This seems like a very fortunate place to be. We're recording this in the clubhouse of the baseball team here at West Point. Correct. And behind us, which you can't see, of course, is Doubleday Field, right? So this Correct. is, you don't really get much more baseball history than that. But I'm curious about this because I'm doing some research now on on uh, the move of the Dodgers and Giants West. And sure. I'm this is a project I'm working on. It's a new book proposal. And the idea is really to get away from that, oh, the world ended when they moved west, right, that kind of New York-centric, and maybe think about what it meant for the rest of the world. A lot of that is looking into the ties across the Pacific between, uh, you know, the baseball ties across the Pacific before but also after World War II because this happened, you know, the post-war era. So tell me a little bit about about, about what, what is the role of baseball? And, and, and it seems, it's always struck me that we have this clearly with our relationship with Japan, but also some of our other allies in that region, baseball is an important cultural bond. I mean, I, I know when I have students from Japan or even Taiwan or Korea, on the other hand, we also have some countries in our own hemisphere where avid baseball players, where we haven't always had, we might say, the best relationship with Cuba. So,
1: sure. So, uh, you, you know, my research uh, looked at baseball from essentially 1941 all the way up until 1958, which is the year that uh, they moved out. and so. Uh, the one kind of unique thing, like you mentioned, that baseball has, I think, different from other sports, uh, because, you know, American football is not played in, in overseas, uh, maybe basketball starting to get like that now, but baseball was usually the, you know, common glue that uh, tied everybody together. And when you took a look at how the United States utilized baseball as a foreign uh, diplomacy tool following the war, uh, they really viewed it as being a symbol of America, but also a you know producing a common language and a and, and, and commonalities between you know what could be disparate cultures. Um, and the Japan case is, is particularly interesting because you know uh, in the twenties and thirties we used to send baseball players players and teams over to Japan, uh, professional teams, Babe Ruth and and, and, and those uh, types of uh, era players. But in the interim in war years, in the 30s and the 40s, they actually banned baseball in Japan. And one of the reasons why they did that was because uh, the Japanese leadership also viewed baseball as an Americana uh, tool. And so uh, when the war ended and we wanted to bring baseball back, uh, it was not only you know, a symbolic nature, but there are some interesting uses of, of, of how we did it. I'll give you one quick anecdote. Um, when we were looking at doing the Incheon landing during the Korean War in 1950, uh, there was a major general, Marquot, who was uh, responsible, worked under MacArthur, and they were concerned that, uh, that if the, the, the actual military operation itself could uh, inject a lot of uncertainty and unrest in Japan, even though you know, Incheon was in Korea. And so one of the things that they did was they brought over a amateur baseball team uh, in, a, in a league, I don't know if it's still in, in place out in the Midwest, called the National Baseball Congress. So the first time they've ever brought a non-professional team over to Japan, and it was done to coincide with the Incheon Landing in order to uh, pacify the Japanese. And the turnout that they had over there was ridiculous. Um, they had a accounts recall a uh, million people showed up for a ticker tape parade to view essentially an amateur team coming down <laughs> Uh, Ginza Avenue in Tokyo, Uh, but then they also had a, I think it was a five game series and they drew over uh, 370,000 people. Which was more than which the Phillies and the Yankees drew in 1950 as well. Right. And Although so, was in the four games, so, that right. <laughs> wasn't much of a Phillies team. I mean, <laughs> uh, so, a- a- anyways, a- interesting uses of, uh, of baseball over time as a kind of symbolic. And, and how deliberate was that of
0: of our foreign policy? Because you know, as a baseball fan, you read about this and you know, of course, and you think that's really interesting. But was it? You know, and the Cold War, of course, is in nineteen fifty. It's a big deal, right? Sure. So, how deliberate was that in terms of our public diplomacy? Or was it just something that was just kind of happened?
1: No. So, I think um, you know, the the kind of analog for that in the seventies was like ping pong diplomacy, yeah. if you remember us sure. with the Chinese. And so, um, it was a deliberate effort. There's another anecdote of an individual that was trying to uh, really energize baseball in Western Europe uh, during uh, the post Cold or post. Over two years at the, you know, the the dawn of the Cold War, and uh, he was looking for funding from the State Department in order to kind of go do some of these trips. I think at the time he really wanted to uh, expand it in, in in Germany at the time, but the State Department really wasn't interested in, in doing it in Germany. But they said if you would like to go to behind the wall and do stuff in Czechoslovakia, that that would be more interesting, and they would receive funding for it. So, and one of the you know, in
0: when, I think when many people see that they play baseball in Korea and Taiwan, there's this sense of, well, we must have must have been soldiers after the war. In fact, that was brought to those countries by Japan. Sure. Right? Yep. And, and it seems like that speaks to the, the complexity of American, I mean, uh, foreign policy related to baseball, because for Japan, this is also a tool of, they didn't bring it over there under the nicest of circumstances either, in some of those cases. Sure. Yep. So it's also a tool of, a, of a Japanese foreign policy, too.
1: Correct. Um, so I don't know as much about how the Japanese um, utilized it. Uh, But, uh, you know, even when going back and taking a look at some of the the media clips from our, you know, whether it was putting baseball in Japan or putting baseball in in Western Europe, I was just reading something before I came over here. There was a headline that talked about baseball denazifying the Germans. And so, you know, we kind of, we smile, we chuckle about it. You know, the usage of that term now, um, you know, we think – I don't. I don't know if baseball's going to be catching <laughs> on the Middle East or if that's something we're going to export over there. But uh, this was. This is how people thought um, after the World War II. But it also. It, on the one hand, it can't.
0: It has to. There has to be a reservoir of goodwill to the United States. Otherwise, what is this weird thing you're doing, right? Correct. But also in Japan, it wasn't out of the blue, right? I mean, Germany right. in 1950 would have been out of the blue. I think in Jordan or somewhere. It's a bad example. And, you know, Syria today. would It was sure. been kind of out of the blue.
1: Yeah, not a lot of baseball being played in Syria today.
0: <laughs> but sure. so. So as a ball player, right? I mean, so. This is a serious baseball program, but it 's not a your typical university setting, right? I mean people here don 't want to do other things after they, after they finish their baseball career then you know so, so talk to me a little bit about, about the experience of playing baseball, particularly at, at West Point. I mean obviously the only college you played at, but sure, and how it fits into the, the culture and, and the, the university.
1: Yeah, so look, I mean we 're developing leaders of character here at, at the academy, um, and that's done both in the classroom but uh, you know, on the military uh, training, but also uh, on the fields of friendly strife, as MacArthur once said. And so playing baseball here, um, again, at Doubleday Field is, uh, is a special, uh, it's a brotherhood. Um, in fact, uh, you know, as, as Dan can tell you, we call it the Army Baseball Family uh, for a reason. Uh, and it's telling that we're having this podcast in the team room uh, because behind me is uh uh, a memorial to uh, Steve Reich, Major Steve Reich, who was killed in Afghanistan uh, in 2005 uh, uh, or six. I apologize for not knowing the date. Um, and so it, it's this is special. It, you know, all these graduates that leave here go out into the military, um, and you know what Daniel can likely expect is to be deployed to uh, you know uh, some not so nice places. Uh, but the kind of the, the the discipline that you learn here. Um, the camaraderie, uh, the teamwork um, on the baseball field really kind of transfers over into uh, your life as an officer. I want
0: to, just a little more of your time, I want to ask you a substantive foreign policy question, which is your counterterrorism research, right? Mm-hmm. What, looking at 2017 and beyond, and not, now, I don't want to get into who won the last, you know, Tuesday's election, because this, this is... There was now. an
1: election this week?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it may have been. Um, <laughs> there was a whole thing, the Cubs won the World Series. Oh, yeah, that's right, <laughs> okay. Um, but um, but nonetheless, I mean, regardless of who won this election, terrorism wasn't, unfortunately, wasn't going away. Yeah. Um, and the new president, regardless of who it was, is going to have to have a strategy for confronting terrorism and, you know, keep trying to keep us safe and all that. What do you think are the major challenges that the next president, we know it's Donald Trump. We're having this discussion after the election. Sure. Right? But who do you, so what does President-elect Trump, what should be on his mind as he thinks about a, a real thoughtful strategy for, one hopes, for confronting terrorism and, and stopping it?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know. There's some lessons that we can kind of pull from the last 15 years of uh, being in almost constant uh, conflict on this problem set, and so one of the—it's uh, not meant to be a pessimistic view—but one of think the real lessons that we've learned that we may not like to acknowledge is the fact that the socio-political dynamics uh, that have given rise to organizations like the Islamic State uh, or others, other jihadist organizations uh, in the Middle East, those socio-political dynamics are very much still in play um the other side of that coin is our when i say our i mean like the united states uh our our foreign policy our ability to affect those socio-political dynamics is limited and um that's been a tough thing to acknowledge and so uh yeah I, i i don't i'm not i'm pessimistic when it when it comes to uh uh, that threat from terrorism in that particular uh, portion of the world. If you just look at you know the conflict in a micro sense in Iraq and Syria, Iraq is a much simpler problem set than Syria is, and Iraq is <laughs> is pretty complicated. i mean, I'm I'm oral. You might
0: not be, but we're all Remember when when Iraq seemed extraordinarily complicated. So sure. anything is a much simpler com- problem than <laughs> anything is a little bit uh, Scary. unnerving. Yeah. But it's interesting you say this about economics, because yesterday we're here at a conference and yesterday there was a panel discussion. Uh, I don't know if you were there or not, but we were both mm-hmm. there. And, and one of the panelists was talking about you know these economic these types of issues. And one of the questions was, what can we, meaning the United States, was from a student, do to address these issues? Which is a very good question, right? Not, not an easy answer, but a very good question. But one thing that strikes me is that. If we look at, say, widespread youth unemployment in the Middle East, the connection to that, to a raising terrorist threat, I think we can all understand, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens when that becomes the charge of the United States to address that problem?
1: Yeah, um, I think as we've seen, you know, whether it be in Afghanistan or Iraq or in places like uh, Yemen, uh, our ability to affect those, uh, those dynamics is extremely limited. Um, and you mentioned the economic piece. Um, i I'd probably put maybe a little more emphasis on the governance piece, Uh, Because until uh, those countries, uh, which are either failed or failing, are able to uh, provide some credible alternative governance uh, for the people in that region, um, it's difficult for the United States to do that from afar. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I think this is going to be a problem that we're going to be facing. So so is this going, I mean,
0: is this, you know, we're now, what, 15 years past September 11th, right, when this is kind of when this all began for many of us is this now permanent war for permanent peace? I mean, not to use the kind of Orwellian language, but is is this what we're looking at? Is there a, you know, is there a, because I think there are different sentiments out there in the United States. One is we've got to get in there, get our hands dirty and solve this. One is one, you know, just massive military force, which I'm not really sure what that would even look like. And one is, and I don't mean this in in a a Trumpian way, but in just a kind of metaphorical way, build a wall around it, right? Mm -hmm. Just keep it over there and have it not be our problem. I don't think that either, that any of those three options are really great, great outcomes.
1: Sure. I mean, there's, there's really no simple answer to this. And, uh, you know, if politicians are going to speak as though there is a simple answer to this, um, you should kind of, uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, unlike baseball, uh, this fight with, uh, jihadist terrorism is, is one where, Uh, let's face it you know we were just talking about World War II earlier winning doesn't mean what winning used to mean when we were doing conventional warfare we knew knew what winning World War II meant correct even when we started and so I don't know if we have a good idea of what winning looks like now and the flip side is the bad guys losing doesn't mean what losing meant to the bad guys what I mean by that is you know we were able to defeat uh, fascism and totalitarianism on the battlefield you can make an argument that we won the Cold War through economic means. Um, we soundly defeated um, you know, communism uh, in the economic arena. When you have this element of religious political violence uh, injected into the mix, even if you are going to defeat, and I do believe that we will uh, soundly take it to the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria, they don't first see losing like we do through Western eyes. And so they view this as a generational conflict and so when they get defeated on the battlefield, they do not say, well, our ideology is inferior. Uh, you know, we should look for alternatives. What they internalize is we need to be more committed, more devout, more devoted. And, and also the, the, the opponent
0: changes, right? Because we are we are a state, or maybe we're mm-hmm. a coalition of states in some cases. They're a, a, a movement, a set of ideas. And, and this is what strikes me. Five years ago, nobody was talking about ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. But we knew, I mean, if you we were thinking about it, you knew that's... Getting rid of Al Qaeda wasn't going to solve anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's the the real struggle is what do you do about the potency of that idea, which speaks to where
1: we where we started. Sure. And even if you are to, uh, you know, put it bluntly, if we were to kill every member of the Islamic State, uh, I still feel that other jihadist organizations, 2.0, 3.0, because of those dynamics we talked about earlier, are still in place, are going to uh, be in play. And so, given that
0: is, I mean, is, which I think there. I think that what you're saying, there would be, when people actually sat down and thought it through, there's kind of broad agreement about that. And I think if you think that mm-hmm. that's, you know, as you say, killing all the leadership of ISIS, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily against that idea, but I don't think it's going to solve sure. the problem. You know what I mean? Um, so, so that feeds this, and, and I think that, that then feeds this notion of we just got to keep ourselves safe, right? Which becomes a whole other set of, because of, of, there were those after September 11th that said this is a policing problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it was that simple, mm-hmm. you know, on September 12th, 2001. Sure. But it said, you know, we, we, the problem is, and, and, and on, on the domestic side, you know, both we're now into, we'll soon we'll be in our third post September 11th, you know, presidency. I think in many ways, the story is the dog that didn't bark, right? We haven't had, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we've had tragedies and obviously one is too many, sure. but we haven't had September 11th too, right? Sure. So is that a strategy of just like kind of play defense or does that just enable the problem to grow and grow to the point it's going to be insurmountable?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple points to kind of raise. One is, you know, I like Bill Parcells' phrase, you know, you are what your record says you are. And uh, when you take a look at a lot of the predictions, you know, September 12th of what was going to happen to the homeland in terms of uh, strategic attacks, catastrophic attacks against us, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised that we had not suffered a, uh, an attack on the size and scope of, of 9-11 now, that is not just because we've played defense, though, and that's an important point to make, which is in this fight, uh, in, a, in a globalized world, um, you cannot just play defense. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the build around the wall and, and staying in, inside the United States' shores um, is not going to be a, uh, a feasible strategy moving forward, particularly when it comes to counterterrorism. It's not, I mean, in my view, it's not, also, it's not really one grounded in, in how the world
0: works in, in, in sure. 2016. Everything is mobile. Economy, right? Information, uh, social media, yeah, absolutely, right. And weapons and and all of that. Um, so, so, so with all of, I mean, I want to get back to the baseball, you know, just a little bit. So, do you in your in your work now? Do you having played? You know, this is a college baseball program where. There seems to be, you know, in college baseball programs, there is, and I have to, full disclosure, my son is just finishing the recruiting process, right? So I've been, cool. you know, spent a lot of time on college baseball fields the last the last six months. Fortunately, I know it's fun for me. Hmm. But, you know, there is this emphasis on, and you talked about it too, character building, right? Mm-hmm. Team building, those, that skill sets, which, you know, in the case of West Point, you're going to have to bring them to the battlefield in some case, you know, but mm-hmm. also to... So does that, like when you're sitting in your office, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, I would never serve in the military, but, and I never played baseball, and I wasn't good enough to play. I played in high school, though, mm-hmm. and I read a lot of baseball books. You know? mm-hmm. and, and when I'm writing about politics or foreign policy, I'm often drawing on things I read about baseball. I'm not necessarily, although I do sneak a few baseball references in. But,
1: but does that inform your, your intellectual process, these experiences playing ball? Yeah, I think from the perspective, I mean, all sports would probably say this, uh, but I truly believe that baseball is a thinking man's game. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm most drawn drawn to. And, you know, uh, I know pitchers are crazy. <laughs> Especially uh, left-handed pitchers. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, uh, Daniel can appreciate this. But, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, being able to think in, in terms of the counterterrorism world, uh, you know, in baseball, it's kind of one of those adages of you always have to think about, you know, what if the ball is hit to me, right, in its simplest form. Um, but you have, that forces you to think through scenarios, uh, you know, ahead of real time. And uh, and so that that skill set is definitely useful in terms of uh, uh, you know looking at the counterterrorism landscape.
0: That's very interesting. So Dan- Daniel, you're going to take over now because uh, our professor has left. Um, so you're a pitcher here. You're a senior, right? A junior. Junior. Yes, sir. So um, talk to me about about playing college baseball as a pitcher. And and particularly what I'm interested in is are you a starting pitcher or reliever? Yes, sir. Starting. starting pitcher. So what is a, what is the Division One pitching rotation look like? How often are you out there pitching? How much you know? Tell us sure. A bit I
2: can. So, um, from a game perspective, right, uh, going into a, a series weekend, there will generally be between three and four games. Um, and each conference is a little bit different. The Patriot League is what's called an academic conference, so we will play two sets of doubleheaders on the weekend. Um, that way, we can be back for as much of the week as we can get, and then there will be a game Tuesday night as well. So, generally, you have five starters, um, and anywhere from. Really, as many relievers as you can carry on the roster, right. just because given injuries and, and the other kind of problems that arise in the season, as I'm sure you know, um, you need as many pitchers as you generally can carry. Um, and so, for the Patriot League specifically, we'll play two seven inning games and two nine inning games. And you want your best two starters to pitch those seven inning games in the hope that they will go the whole game. Um, and then you're, you know, generally your younger or less experienced starters will do the two nine inning games on the weekend. Um, because, you know, you can then use that that bullpen that you've hopefully set up with kind of older arms who are more used to those stressful game situations and bring them in when they're needed. Um, and so kind of carrying that over on Tuesday night, you'll have that again and usually generally a, a younger pitcher or less experienced pitcher um, because Tuesday night opponents, well, a, they don't count towards your conference record. Um, and generally, they're they're a weaker opponent because they're coming here to West Point to play us as it is in any conference. So that's a
0: home game Tuesday night for you. Generally, yes,
2: sir. So, um, and then you know during the week, what will happen is we, for the pitchers, it involves a lot of throwing, um, but but everything you do really is kind of focused on either your mechanics in terms of pitching, your arm health, um, your. <laughs> You know how good your stuff is in terms of like, you know, does your cutter cut? Does your slider slide? Does your curveball have that good twelve to six or or, or one to six or wherever you throw it? Um, And so it is, as Colonel Price hit on earlier. It's a it's a thinking man's game. I mean, I can show you. I have a journal in my locker right now, and it's like forty pages deep of notes I take. You know about my mechanics, my stuff that day, Um, and and, you know, kind of bringing that back to foreign policy. It's like. Almost sometimes I'll be thinking about my mechanics, and it's like I'm explaining the Syrian civil war to someone. You know, and sometimes I think about it, and I get so kind of lost in, in how much is going into that. Whereas I can easily kind of – not easily, but generally identify the various factors of the Syrian civil war and lay it out in a way that I can identify. And that's a complex yeah. issue. And
0: mechanics, I, I can't. I, and for pitchers, I mean, I don't know if you ever read the book, Ball Four? I have. OK, so Great at one book. point, he talks about how he'll be in the restaurant and he'll just start waving his arm to see if it hurts or not, right? Mm-hmm. And for pitchers, it is this highly specialized skill that doesn't relate to really anything in any other sport, really. And, and it does, and you just have to work at perfecting it and perfecting it. So it has to get very deeply inside your head, which may be why I left handed pitchers pitchers or so. Or so. I'm not left handed <laughs> myself, although I'm not a pitcher. Um, I'm curious, at a, at a competitive college level, how much quantitative analysis does, goes into coaching, now you're not coaching the team, right, you see it, goes into coaching decisions, what kind of data are are they using and, uh, and getting and, and making public, you know, right. to fans or, or scouts or whomever?
2: Right, you know I imagine, and, and I can generally, I can really only speak for army baseball, yeah, sure. maybe different yeah. in other schools Um, But I I imagine college baseball reflects, you know, that opening scene from from Moneyball where they're all sitting around a table similar to this one, and the guy's like, oh, she's got an ugly girlfriend. I can't draft that guy. Um, And I wouldn't say it's that kind of absurd, but it is a lot based on just, you know, your specific coach and and how, like, for instance, Coach Foster played 11 years in the minor leagues, coached at Boston College. Last year he had a kid who was drafted first round, uh, I think 19th pick overall. Um, And so for him, he can just watch a kid and be like, okay, this guy's got this, this, and this. He has this level of potential. This is what I'm going to do with him. Um, And and so that's kind of generally – that's kind of my college experience, at least. Um, I know there is a junior on the team whose senior thesis – he's a – essentially was a math major. Um, His senior thesis is going to be developing a sabermetrics model for the Army baseball team, Um, something that can really break it down into these really
0: specific numbers like war um, and all these other kind of crazy – But it's also – it's also even – I would think – you know, at, when you're looking at at the major league level, mm-hmm. you have this data, you know what everyone did in triple right. A, double A, college, and maybe it's not perfect, but you have and you also have tremendous ability to move your roster around. Right. If this guy is just overvalued, you can trade him. Right. right. You can't do that so easily at West Point. Right. Right. So 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 there's the recruiting side where if you are I would I mean I know this i been through this, but if you're a college coach, like the coach Coach Foster, what is he gonna go high school statistics? That's meaningless to him. Right. I would I mean if I would think. Right. Right. So he's got to see a kid and see the growth potential and see how You know, so some of those tools are harder to apply even if you have the data and even if you believe in the data, right? I mean, I'm I'm curious to see how your friend writes this.
2: And I would say, you know, the other thing is specifically Army baseball, Navy, Air Force. um, There's so much more to it than just baseball. Right. I mean, as much as we would like it to be just how you are as a baseball player, um, you know, the level of comfort they have with the military, their um, ability to perform in the classroom, their potential to perform in the classroom. I mean, all these things are... Uh, The coaches have to take into account in terms of recruiting and and putting a team together. And so, you know, you'll see the Army baseball team specifically um, is kind of a hodgepodge of of these recruits. And generally they aren't the best academically. You know, then you have some kids who were not recruited, came here um, academically or, you know, got in the regular way and then tried out for the team, made the team. And they're generally not as of performers on the baseball field as the recruits, but they bring a specific asset to the team. And so it, I mean it, it and then it all comes together beautifully to, to make this this team. And so it's a it's a very unique uh organization here and I'm sure it's similar at the other service academies. Whereas if it, if we are at Louisville or
0: or you know Florida right. State or something it would be that, that first baseball subset players. Absolutely. Right. And that would be and, and that seems to be that would be a it also seems to me that might frame playing here, right? Not just the, what the team looks like but You know, I mean I've been around I've taught at many universities and I've guest lectured at many universities, but this is an unusual one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you're not you're a junior, you're not worried about what law school you're going to, Mm -hmm. you know, a year and a half from now. And and how does that affect or how do you think about the baseball differently? But you sort of top first-round draft pick, right? So people, you know, you can play at the most elite level here if you're good enough. Right. But there's another, I don't know what happens to the military service if you get Right, traffic. so it's really varied.
2: And it's just like anything else. You know, in 2006, say we're building up for the surge or, or, or whatever, your opportunities to go play professional baseball are, are much thinner than they are now in this era of kind of drawing down the military. Well, given the recent elections, I don't, I don't know what's that's going to go forward. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it's different. And that is, that's definitely something that, that goes into it. Um, and how you frame, you know, baseball on a daily basis, because like I was saying, if you're a player at Louisville, you know, your motivation day in and day out is I want to get to the big leagues. And here it's, it's definitely different. Um, and so I would say that, you know, generally what happens is, is and this goes back to what Colonel Price was saying about this, this brotherhood is that, you know, you go in day in, day out, knowing that what you're doing is for the guy next to you. You know, you're not going in day in day out thinking about getting to the major leagues, um, because baseball may be over for you in the next year, and you got to go lead a platoon. And so, what you are doing is making sure that that experience for your teammate is as good as it can be. Because, I mean, you know, Lord knows what what they're going to be doing in, in two right. years, three Which years. Which you might have happen. to, be right? Absolutely. So, the next place you might be working together. Right. Absolutely. And so, in in and that's how this team gets so to be so tight. I mean, um, I saw a picture actually yesterday on Facebook of, of two former grad- graduates, former baseball players in Iraq together. Ran into each other in a, in a mess hall um, in Iraq, took a picture, put it on Facebook. I mean, you know, having a great right. time. Um, and it's because they have those memories to look back on in that brotherhood. So, and that's, that's something that makes this program really unique and drew me here specifically. So,
0: so let's, let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about your junior, you're studying IR. Tell me a little about your research. Right, well, so <laughs> I'm actually writing a paper uh, right now. Uh, just finished it up.
2: And it, the topic was going to be uh, President Hillary Clinton's foreign policy in regards to the Middle East. Yeah, you a lot of people
0: are going to get back to the drawing board now. <laughs>
2: <one. laughs> so Sorry. I'm interested to see how my teacher takes this, uh, being that it's all now defunct. Uh, but but I, I'm going through that uh, in my foreign policy class. Um, I'm also in an advanced IR theory class, um, and I'm looking at specifically Mansfield and Snyder's work on democratization and war. Um, and I'm trying to do a predictive exercise in terms of what does what does their study say is the next step for the state of Iraq, right. um, and and I mean it, it's a very difficult situation um, and research is limited in regards to something quite so complex as 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 Iraq is
0: now. Right. Sure. And 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 their research, which I'm going to summarize briefly because not everyone is sure, yes, studying sure. IR, but but their research looks at at essentially argues that the if we, could, we could look at the democratic peace theory, but we have to recognize that getting from here to there, the there being democracy, is when countries are most vulnerable to upheaval, mm-hmm. most vulnerable to conflict, most vulnerable to war. So there are several ways to interpret their findings, right? Mm-hmm. One is, therefore, we shouldn't get involved in the democracy business. The other is, we better accelerate the democracy business. Well, in said in, Kiev in, uh, in Iraq... I mean I, I haven't talked to Jack in a while though you know but it seems like that process hasn't been accelerated right It's been drugged dragged out, which is one of the reasons we have this this conflict now that cc is going and going right absolutely
2: and, and some of the other kind of factors I've had to look into is is you know what what role do sunnis tribes play in this and it, not that you know I'm sure they addressed it in, in broader terms in their studies, but things that specific haven't been addressed, and I'm trying to put them into into play into my research and it's been
0: a difficult exercise and how So as you think of your future, I mean, you're a young player, you're you're a junior in in college, Mm -hmm. you're going to be here for a little while longer and then working in this field for a while. How do you see these challenges, and we talked about this in the previous segment, but how do you see these challenges evolving for you? Do you see that this is just this is going to go on forever, and we've got to contain this? Or do you see that there's really going to be something different about what, what we as the United States will be facing in 2017 or 2018 than we've been facing the last decade?
2: Right. Well, you know, for me personally, right, my fascination with the Middle East and American foreign policy, specifically in the Middle East, started at a young age. You know, I was, I'm an Army brat. Um, I vividly remember 9-11, the invasion of Iraq, the deployments of my dad, my neighbors. Um, and so from that early age, I've kind of grown up, grown up thinking about, almost inevitably that I will end up in the Middle East. Uh, (laughs) And today, it it continues to look this way. Um, And something, you know, as we were talking about Ambassador Crocker last night, I think what's really going to be important for the United States and and is a little concerning to me at this point is that I think, um, you know, we can't abandon this American world order. Um, As much as it appeases the electorate, as much as that answer is very easy to understand for the average American, I just don't see... That producing a safer world in any way, um, especially engaging with our European allies, our, our Southeast Asian allies, our allies in the Middle East, to you know simple things like intelligence sharing, um, just in, in general engagement. You know, like President Obama said, he really wanted to engage with the Arab world, and how much that's happened since 2008 is up to debate. But I think that's on the right track, and that's something that we have to continue moving forward with in the future if we want to find some kind of solution to this problem.
0: This seems to me, you raise a very good point, and it seems to me to raise a very difficult challenge, which is, you know, I mean, I think most people, I would agree largely with what you've just said, and and the reason I would agree with that is that I don't see withdrawing from the world. I don't know what that would even look like for the United States. You know, do we make mistakes as a global leader? Of course we do. Mm -hmm. Do we do some good things? Yeah, of course we do. Do we have other options? That, that's a hard question to answer, right? And I don't expect I'll be interested in your thoughts. I don't expect you to to know that answer for sure. But it's it's additionally difficult because we have people demanding it who haven't really thought it through, mm-hmm. right? Because it is, and and because you know many of them have been on the wrong end of this, right? I mean, you know, there I, I think there is some truth to that. There are winners and losers of globalization. And if you stepped on an IED in Iraq. And maybe, you know, this is not, it's not the same as, oh, I got a nice consulting fee to advise somebody in Korea, right? These are different ends of the globalization. So how do you kind of, how do you, one, what's the policy outcome of that? And two, how do you talk to people about this? How do you build, you know, so support for, for these right. ideas? Because to go back to yesterday, one thing that struck me, with also something thing Ambassador Cro- Crocker said, is, is that Tuesday's election, again, I mean, I, every, you listen to my podcast, you know whose side I was on. I was a Clinton supporter. I am not a fan of Donald Trump. But this election, from the foreign policy angle, Hillary Clinton is a caricature of the foreign policy establishment. She doesn't follow the following. She is the foreign policy. And I don't mean that in a value-neutral way. Well, the American people, that did not engender her great affection among the American people, right? And, and, and you know, how many votes really switched to election votes, but she lost the election. That, that, that we know, as, as Donald Trump would say. But one of the reasons for that, I think, is we have failed to sell these ideas to the American people, right, absolutely. right? So it's not just enough to say we're stronger when America leaves. That's a platitude. That's not an explanation. So, so you're going to be out there. You're, you're, you know, on this path and you're studying, and you're taking this stuff seriously. Right. W- what do we do? Cause you're going to be in a better position than me. Right. This is
2: a very interesting subject because actually yesterday I was sitting there, uh, you know, we sit together as a baseball team at lunch. Um, there are several tables, they seat 12 people and I was sitting there explaining. Globalization. What makes us prosperous? A nation. Why it is important that America leads to a group of the baseball team. But and uh, I one jo- funny answer to tell you.
0: My son plays on a team in the Bronx. Right. Where are you from in the United States? You live uh, all over. Here, yeah, right? all over. But Texas now. Okay. When you get to Armory, best one question about that in a second. But okay. um, he plays on a team in the Bronx, and this is the Bronx, right? So the Bronx, as I don't know if you spent time there, but it's right, pretty it's, baseball intense mm-hmm. place. There's a, there's a local team there that's you know had some good history over the years mm-hmm. and all of that, right? Very eth- racially and ethnically diverse team, right? There's Five Dominicans, because Dominicans, you know, they love baseball. Five kind of, uh, you know, like white Catholic guys and one Jew. And, and, and the Jewish kid, my son, is um, is pitching, right? And he's, he's the younger kid on the team. He's pitching. He's pitching a no-hitter, right? So, so I don't want to say anything to him. And, and he's a left-handed pitcher, right? So you'll appreciate the story. So he's a left-handed pitcher. And I'm thinking... You know, but like he's a kid, so he's got water. Does he need it? You know, but I don't want to say anything because you know there's a there's a protocol and there's a, there's superstitions and there's right, a pra- right, right way to behave in this situation. And for me to do nothing, not say anything, mm-hmm. but I walk back behind the dugout because like a chain link fence behind the dugout, it's a little league field in the Bronx, because I want to make sure just to maybe listen, eavesdrop for a second, and he's arguing on the bench about exactly this. <laughs> <laughs> with his teammates. About you can't just bomb everybody in the Middle East. It's not their fault they were born. They're just 14, 15 <laughs> years old, you know? And so so I'm glad it runs in the left-handed pitcher strain. But anyway, so continue.
2: Yeah, I mean, and right, like I was saying, you know, I, I think that, especially in this election cycle, it has been brought up that it's much easier to sell the idea, especially to someone who lost their job in, in the mining industry or, or anything, in industry, really, in the Midwest, that tearing up NAFTA and you know, protectionist trade policies are good for the economy. Um, and I think the same way kind of isolationism is, is good for America. You know, there's no reason right. to have soldiers in South Korea or Germany or, or all over the world. And, you know, the discussion I had yesterday, I really kind of started with 1945. You know, we won World War II. We had to contain the Soviets. You know, we established this American world order. And, you know, free trade and, and kind of, although there are negative effects to it, and I don't think we effectively address those side effects. Um, and I think now we're kind of realizing that we didn't do that. Um, but I think you know that is what makes this country prosperous. That's what allows us to do all the
0: wonderful things that we are able to do. And, and we should have debate about what our role in the rest of the world is, right? Mm-hmm. This is why we have elections. I think we have to, have, I, I would advise, I mean my preference would be to have that debate in as informed a way as possible, mm-hmm. right, based on real information. My preference would also, I mean, I was, what struck me is that if you want to say that we should not be involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, anywhere, like, I'm actually okay with that, you know, and I'm not sure, I mean, I'd probably come down somewhere between the two major candidates on that issue, but I was really struck by the language in which this happened, right, I mean, I don't know about you, but where I come from, when you say America first, right? Th- that's that's not an empty slogan, right? There's a lot of there's a pretty horrific. I mean, the, 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 in, in my community, people back up right away, mm-hmm. and that that really like you can't have a conversation if you start at that point because it's really frightening for people. Um, continue, Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially you know the other thing that's interesting
2: is something that I don't think was addressed, and I addressed it in my paper, is that. You know, there was very little mention about Afghanistan in any of the debates or or any of the kind of campaign rhetoric. Um, And so formulating what's next for either presidential candidate in Afghanistan is really... Why do you think that was the case? uh, It's forgotten. I mean, you know, it's not a hot button issue. Nobody wants to talk about Afghanistan. I mean, people were tired of talking about Afghanistan in 2008. Um, And so what people want to talk about is, you know, ISIS protection
0: in China, you know, huge. I mean, I, I, I mean I, it's, it's not an attractive topic. I would start by the commander-in-chief for, uh, forum for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. But one of which, and there was a lot of attention there about all the questions about you know email and Benghazi, right, the kind of Hillary Clinton scandals, mm-hmm. but I mean, the, no one is surprised that that's maybe like it or not, no one is surprised by that. What did strike me is that all the attention on, on veterans. Now, I'm a big advocate for taking care of our veterans. I mean, people... My father is a veteran. He mm-hmm. he. I don't know what he would do without veterans' benefits. I mean, I, this is real. We need to help people. I understand that. But... And, and for many voters, that is the primary you know, way through it, especially the generation that's like 70 and older, right? They did their, my father did his two years in the army in the 50s, and he's, you know, he doesn't have a lot of money, and he's very happy to have these benefits. And if they were to be taken away, or if you make that a veteran's experience, hospital easier for him, he's gonna be happy about that. But that's not foreign policy, right? right? It's domestic policy, we need to take care of them, to help them out, they serve the country, we should honor that, we take care of them. And if you don't believe that, well, I'd be interested in your opinion, but I'm going share that opinion. But that's not foreign policy. So that, so we we really got bogged into things that were barely even foreign policy. don't yeah, yeah. talk about climate change either.
2: Right, uh, uh, right, absolutely. And I think you know I think at least a reason of that is like you said earlier, you know, Secretary Clinton represents the foreign policy establishment, and that was deeply unpopular. So she has that motivation to avoid that conversation. Whereas talking about veterans' affairs is probably a vote gainer. You know, saying right. she has this comprehensive plan, laying it out, and, and that's popular. And then you know on the flip side, Donald Trump's foreign policy. Is often, you know, or was during the campaign trail, kind of not comprehensive at all. Really, you couldn't understand it. Not comprehensible, right? And I don't think, especially on a forum in which he is, you know, toe to toe with Secretary of State Clinton, who's had, you know, years and years
0: of experience in, in foreign policy. And so he has a motivation to stay away from that subject as well. So I'll make a baseball analogy since this is a baseball podcast, but I don't know if you watched the primary debates. Yes, sir. Okay, the Democratic side. Right, yes, sir. So there were these moments where they'd be talking about something, you know, whatever, health care, some whatever domestic policy issue, you know, economics or something. And then they would say, now we're going to ask a foreign policy question. And they would ask Bernie Sanders a foreign (laughs) (laughs) policy question. He would start answering it. That was fine. And then they would ask Hillary. And then as he was answering, Hillary Clinton would be preparing to answer, right? And she looked like a guy with the on-deck circle, who sees somebody throwing an 85 hour fastball with no movement on it, right? She just had this look on her face, like, like I just want to take my swing at that. And, and you know, and so it's, I think it's, I don't think anybody really wants to have a debate with Hillary Clinton, even if you disagree with her on everything, because she right. is, even if it's Marco Rubio or somebody, she right. she's just very fluent in those issues. So you're right, there was a... Yeah, and that was something
2: else I've been struck in my research, is, is just how deep she has been involved in, in foreign policy in the past. I mean, especially during the Obama administration, but even farther back yeah. than that. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I, I watched those debates as well, um, and I thought Senator Sanders
0: was was in single A, right. and Hillary Clinton it was, was on the in the major leagues. League. Yeah, right. absolutely. But the problem is that then, then you don't have a serious discussion. Right. Because what happened, I, I believe, from a, political, from a domestic politics side, the primary voters in the Democratic Party, they supported Sanders' positions. Mm-hmm. He couldn't articulate them. Right. Right? And then... I was, I mean, I, I worked in New York City politics for many years, right? A rule of thumb about New York City politics is that nobody ever lost an election by being too pro-Israel. And those, I mean, I mean regardless of your position on the Middle East, you have to understand that's how New York City politics work. And Bernie Sanders, first Jewish candidate, really, to run for president. And he, and he ends his statement about the Middle East. He says, essentially, we should not conflate support for Netanyahu with support for Israel, which is true, I mean, right? And that is, and, and a Democratic primary voters, Jewish primary voters in New York, they agree with that. Right. But then he doesn't say... The obvious thing, which is, and we will always support the security of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a minor league mistake. Because if he said that, I mean, then you're gonna move voters. But if you don't say that, that's the end of the discussion right. Right,
2: for a lot of primary and, voters. Yeah, you know, not to continue bringing it back to my research, but another thing that I, oh, please, that's what I that I've analyzed is, is Hillary Clinton's speech to CEPOC and to to other kind of pro Israel organizations and what she said. And she was very, very pro-Israel. Um, and, and again, going, you know, now to President elect Trump,
0: I it's difficult for
2: me to even find where he's spoken about Israel,
0: it's. A, I have no idea what Trump's Israel policy will be. I mean, I. I was. Um, I first of all, I think that that you know. The, I think we have a. You know, it, it is one of the data points i think very few people know is that jews voted for clinton in higher numbers than latinos did sure. right after hearing about what was going to happen and the reason for that is that is for a lot of reasons right the real reason for that is if you run those campaign ads at the end you're not going to get a lot of jewish votes right i mean it's not that complicated so so i wonder about trump's because he's going to be surrounded by these very hawkish people mm-hmm. right i think trump trump if he stops and thinks about it and you know he Grew up in New York, right. right? So these, so he kind of understands. He's kind of, and if you look at the early Republican debates, it was a very interesting moment where Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee, who probably only met Jews in professional settings, <laughs> right, said to him, "We're saying, you know, this very Likudnik approach," and Trump was saying, "Well, of course, we need to negotiate with the Palestinians to try to cut a deal. I'm a deal maker. Now, I'm a deal maker or not." That is the opinion of the actual ordinary Jewish people you would meet on the street, right? right. Their, their pro-Israel constituency are being evangelical Christians. right? So it's a very different. So I don't know what his, you know, we don't know what the real Donald Trump thinks on this.
2: Yeah, and, and it, I think what will really be interesting is, is to see who he appoints in his cabinet. You know, I was reading today about uh, retired Lieutenant General Flynn, Jeff Sessions, some of the other kind of candidates. Right. Um, and, and the other thing I was saying is that, you know, Donald Trump or president Trump has shown that you know, he is willing to sacrifice what people would think are his core values in order to cut a deal. Um, but the question is, you know, how much influence will his cabinet have, and
0: will they be willing to do that as well? And, and you know, I do a lot of work in the former Soviet Union, and, and, and what I was did I've been doing Georgian and, Georgian, Georgian, Georgian and Ukrainian media since this you know, election, and before the election as well, and of course they're panicked, mm-hmm. right? And another colleague of mine, who's a smart guy who studies Ukraine, said, you know, there's two possibilities here. One is the the what, from my perspective, is a bad outcome, which is essentially he turns that that policy over to Putin. You know, right. I mean, and, and the pro-Putin people around him, who, which I think would be really a, a bad, bad mistake. But the other policy is that he, you know, the rest of his party is very hawkish on these right. issues, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And and I actually think the right policy is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, is to actually think about it, but. But if, it, if he says, you know what, I'm not interested in Ukraine, I'm going to give it to, you know, let's say Gingrich, whose name has been, I mean, regardless of what you think right. of Duke Gingrich, on Ukraine, he basically has the, the anti-Putin positions, it's basically the same as Hillary Clinton, really. So if he just says, you take care of it, I'm not interested, or is he going to say, hey, well, I've got my businesses over there, so we don't, just, we just don't know. Yeah. And we don't know what's behind the the screen, the, the curtain, because we never got to look at the tax return. Right. I mean, I, I'd
2: give anything to be a fly on the wall in one of these meetings, especially, you know, involving... I'd be a, terrified
0: to be a fly on the wall
2: But, you know, especially given the influence of, of, you know, Speaker Paul Ryan, as well as Mitch McConnell, right. um, and, and the fact that they are, yeah, generally anti-Putin. You know, Trump has given this perception that he is pro-Putin. Um, you know, I, Lieutenant General Flynn has these kind of controversies regarding... Right. His the alliance... Vice President-elect
0: Pence is a hardline anti-Putin guy.
2: Absolutely. So... I, you know, these all these kind of – it's almost like a team of rivals on this specific issue. Right. Um, and so I'm very interested to see – a little bit terrified, but interested as well to
0: see, you know, what direction we head. And for me, the sad thing is that it precludes a real discussion, right? It precludes a discussion we need to have, which is that – which is we have to recognize who Putin is, and we have to recognize the extent of – and have a discussion of what we can and should do about it, mm-hmm. right? Are we really like – how close – I, I – you know, I – I'm hoping to have the former Georgian defense minister on in a couple of weeks. He's going to be in New York, so I'm hoping to get him on. But to have this conversation with him, which I've had informally with him, which is, you know, we need to explore what is the U.S. level of commitment. This is, this is West Point, right? This is, so, I mean, do you, can you imagine people graduating from here and going over to Abkhazia or Crimea or the Donbass? I mean, you I mean, may not be interested to answer that question, so I'll make it a rhetorical question. Right. But, you know, but we have to, but that's where this goes. We have to have a conversation. And we can't if we have – if it is framed by if you disagree with this conservative position, the hawk position, you're a Putin stooge. But the problem is there's real evidence that Trump is a Putin stooge. So how do you – I don't want to say – No, yeah, and
2: it is an interesting topic and one that should have – I wish there had been a more um, kind of drawn-out conversation in the campaign trail and as well in these debates. Um, The one thing I would say, again, is like I mentioned earlier, is this – you know, we have this American world order. (laughs) We've established it. We, you know, and and this, to what degree where a hegemon will be, you know, is debated. Um, But really why it's so successful and why it is so special is that we are on top because the other states give consent. Um, And and I think, especially in the Middle East, if if we are to, you know, kind of do these isolationist policies that we we heard on the campaign trail, if we are to draw out, you know, we will will effectively create this power vacuum, and I, I think Putin will... Take advantage of that to whatever
0: degree he, he's able to. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast about the Middle East, which is that I believe that uh, the challenge for the United States in this conflict, this kind of I don't know, cold, lukewarm conflict with mm-hmm. Putin, whatever you want to call right. it, um, cool conflict, is that in Ukraine, <clears throat> in Georgia, and now in the Middle East, we're trying to build something. Right. Mm-hmm. We win if Georgia becomes a consolidated state that is democratic and a member of NATO. Same with Ukraine. Right. That is our goal. Now, that's, I mean, that I would like that to happen, you know, but that's a tough task, even under the best of circumstances. We have to right. be realistic about that. His goal is not to make Ukraine other, anything other than broken mm-hmm. or same thing with Georgia. Right. So, So when you're trying to build a castle of blocks and someone's, just and, and it's not like i need to build a bigger one to win all i do is kick yours over right and that's that's what this conflict looks like if we expand that paradigm to the middle east it's going to be even more difficult right yeah or if, if he expands it to the middle east
2: yeah i agree completely i mean it's a very difficult task and given you know kind of the technology and including you know like putin's capabilities in terms of cyber and our relative you know, fledgling cyber capabilities and what aspect, what role that'll play in this kind of this lukewarm conflict, as you've mentioned, is another aspect that that's kind of terrifying to think about and, and something that needs to be addressed. But I, you know, countering Putin and again, I, I keep going back to this world order that we have. You know, that is where we really set ourselves apart. I mean, in talk, in terms of relative power, right? The United States to Russia, one on one, is no contest. Um, but in, and I think you know, Putin definitely wants to. Kind of widened his sphere of influence in, 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 in his region, and you know, that's deeply popular with the Russian people. Um, I you know, I personally don't know the best way to counter Putin. I agree though with you that it's somewhere in the middle between this hard, you know, hawkish anti Putin stance and this kind of Putin crony stance that we see today, and you know, yeah, we I, may see today, right? Yeah, may see today. I, I'm very, very interested to see you know where we end up standing. I mean, for all the things that President Obama gets criticized in terms of his foreign policy, I at least know where we stand in regards to Putin. Right. Um, going forward, I don't know that. And that's concerning,
0: especially you – know, and, I mean, and had we elected Hillary Clinton, there's continuity, right? Because right. George W. Bush, which is who was the president of Putin, came into office. President Obama had it been Hillary Clinton. We, that's very – and continuity is important. I mean, it's not – you can't – look, at the democracy. So continuity gets right. disrupted. That happens, right? Uh, but but it would help this. and We're not going to have that.
2: Yeah, I, I mean – it is what it is, you know, moving forward. You're gonna do your job in, in academia in, in terms of it. I'm gonna do my job in terms of, you know, my own independent studies here at West Point and my time in the military. You know, I will prepare and I know my colleagues will prepare for whatever Russian threat, whether we face it in Ukraine, Georgia, Syria, wherever that may be. Um, you know, my my goal will be solely focused to that, to the effect that if I am deployed to Syria, I can understand not only Syrian culture, not only the Syrian conflict not only the various Syrian factors that would go into whatever mission I may be given in that region, but as well as to understanding the Russian influence and and what role they will play in my role.
0: Right. In in, in that
2: kind of, you know, that kind of 21st century American officer perspective, that's very important to being successful in whatever mission you're given. Um, And so,
0: you know, moving forward, that is going to be my focus. So let's get back to baseball. Sure. So, so so you said you grew up kind of all over, a military family. Um, and, you know, you're – what – did you grow up a baseball fan? Let's start with that.
2: Uh, I did. So my dad grew up outside of Houston. He was a diehard Houston Astros fan. My youngest – So he's like what, the
0: Jose Cruz, J.R. Richard days? Right,
2: yeah. He's uh, a little – Yes, he is. Um, but like the days I fondly remember are like the Jeff Bagwell, Craig sure, sure, days. Sure, sure. But he's my, his, right. And, but you know, my for the youngest pictures of me, I'm wearing a Jeff Bagwell onesie, <laughs> um, and so I, I don't know how many times you've met
0: diehard Houston Astro fans. I actually I listen to this podcast too. But I had growing up in San Francisco, California. I moved to the city from Houston. Okay. In fifth or sixth grade, and. And now, he's, by the turn of the century, he became a Giants fan. But right. in the eighties, he he was a huge. So I, we went to Astros games. Right. You know, we I knew those teams well. Yes. Yeah, I, you you're know, right. though. was not too many. And I think there
2: was definitely a factor in the fact that my dad was also a Houston Oilers fan as a kid. So was my friend. And then they left and went to Tennessee. Right. And he was so heartbroken by that. I think it just invested him deeper into the Astros. And then you know, as a factor of that, myself and my brother are super deeply invested in the Astros. So do you remember the 2005 World Series? I do. I remember it very clearly. Yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> especially I will I will never forget um, God, what was that there was a reliever's name and he's always been in the back of my head was it Quails maybe I don't know someone who gave up just a bomb and I just remember being a kid watching him being in my head like man I could
0: do that better than that that was just terrible <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to give up a home run right yeah. <laughs> well also that and that White Sox team if I remember they ran the table I think 11-1 oh, yeah. or something Yeah. And, and they weren't that good I mean it didn't no, seem like I, they were a magical team but they just won everything right. like the
2: Indians until they ran into the Cubs yeah absolutely I, you know I yeah, I remember them being, not great, but just beating us and, and yeah. being confused as to how that happened. But the thing is, you know, we are such diehard Astro fans that in the really bad years for the Astros, 2013, 2014, like nearly 100 lost season one time, and I think we did have 100 lost season one year. But we bought into the Jeff Leno process. I mean, I'm still deeply bought into that process oh, yeah. of, of rebuilding, and I think... What they have done there is really excellent and will be a blueprint for teams. I mean, you've seen the Yankees taking,
0: right, taking well, little is, snippets of it. This is the problem, is if the Yankees figure this out. Right. They, then you, they can, use, can just speed it up. Because then, and, and then they can use the resources to right, exactly. whenever they need to.
2: And the Astros, it, 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 was, it was this more long process. And I thought this year we would really build off of last year. I think we our starting rotation wasn't strong enough. Our lineup wasn't strong enough. And it was a little inflated last year. And I think Dallas Keuchel got overworked. Yeah. I think a, a lot of those factors you know, played into us having kind of a – a, a rough season. But I actually saw yesterday the Astros are reported to be pursuing uh, Miguel Cabrera and Edwin Encarnacion and what Brian the McCann. I've heard that too. Yeah, which is I know, I, Brian
0: McCann's point. Yeah, he, yeah, he's not he's not Miguel. But do you really want Miguel Cabrera in the American? I guess in that See, ballpark. I don't know. See, the in the National is, League, oh, he's in the American League. So yeah, Astros he's in my in mind is still in the National League. League. The because
2: problem I is, I have also have vivid memories of Carlos Lee, and that was a terrible deal. Right. I mean, he was pretty good for the White Sox. He wasn't Miguel Cabrera. Right, but he was pretty good for the White Sox, and he got to the Astros and was. Horrible. I, I mean, another model way here is Albert Pujols. Yeah. Oh you know, no. I mean, I, I would be... He, Cabrera's a great player. He's old. I yeah. mean, you know, I would be... But that ballpark of the Crawford boxes, I think he could be a force. I, I really want Edwin Encarnacion. I think he'll be a cheaper option than Miguel Cabrera. may not be by a lot, but it, it'll be... I, I, and I, I think he is super... I think he'll be super successful at the Crawford from the boxes.
0: baseball From the baseball point, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. If I were an Astro fan... I would be concerned that the Yankees are going to go after him. Yeah, He's such a good fit for the Yankees. Yeah, he is a good fit He's for the Yankees. He's such a good fit for but the you,
2: Yankees. But, you know, you usually associate the Yankees with these big-name players, so maybe they're enticed into Miguel Cabrera. I don't know, though. I don't know what goes on know. in Brian Cashman's head. So I, I buy into the process. I think, you know, George Springer... Carlos Correa. It's a good nucleus. Alex Bregman. I mean, Jose Altuve might be the MVP. Yeah, Jose Altuve is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I even think like Colby Rasmus has done pretty good. And and some of the prospects still in the pipeline are are pretty exciting. That guy we got out of Kentucky, AJ Reed,
0: big kid. Um, He can swing the bat a little bit. So see, this is how one of the ways that baseball has changed. When I was 20 years old, if you knew three guys in the minor league system for your favorite team, you were considered a weirdo. <laughs> like, not like a baseball fan, but just a right, weirdo. Right. Like that's weird. Why do you know all that stuff? Like that's like very arcane. Now it's part of how we think about the game. Right. And I,
2: a, I think you know Moneyball obviously played played an effect on that kind of like seeing it the big picture. Right. right? Even when I was younger, you know, nobody knew, People don't even know the minor league teams for right. their team. Right. And now you kind of understand it as an organization as a whole. Yeah, and, and you can see, you know, five, 10, 15 years down, down the line.
0: And it's also a way of keeping fans involved, right? Right. Because absolutely. you can, you can, you can always dream on a prospect. You right. can't dream on, you know, uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera or somebody's a great player, but you know, it, right. it doesn't. So it keeps them. Did you ever go to the Astrodome?
2: I, no, I have not been to the Astrodome. I've been to Minute Maid several times. The Astrodome was closed before I ever, you know, and I've never been inside. My dad tells me, you know, back when he was a kid, the Astrodome was, like, all the rage. Oh, you yeah. Know, it was the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah.
0: <laughs> did you ever – so so did you ever see Nolan Ryan pitch for the Astrodome? No. I did, but not in Houston.
2: I've seen it on the computer. I mean, like I was saying earlier, right, I'm such a mechanics freak yeah. that I will watch, especially, like, like, lately I've been working on getting a good, late back knee push, right? So if your back knee, you know, breaks – Backwards and kind of collapses, then you don't get that extra velocity. Right. If you get that knee forward and everything's pushing down the mound, you can get that kind of extra velocity and control. And so that's been kind of like my emphasis this fall. And one of the guys who did such a phenomenal job with that was Nolan Ryan. So you go back and, and watch this right. old tape, and I kind of,
0: you know, on YouTube, you slow it you down, can, right? Slow it down and pause and check it. The most, the best Houston Astro pitcher I ever saw was J.R. Richard. Really. I don't know if your father's probably yeah, talked no, about absolutely. that. But I saw him pitch a couple of games before he had the stroke at the Candlestick Park, mm-hmm. uh, before he got sick in 1980. He was a, a monster. And that's, and he was awesome.
2: And they talk about that uh, a lot. I mean, you know, his story is obviously very sad. But, yeah. um, but yeah. I mean, he kinda, it didn't end sad. I mean, he, No, right. Right. But, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, how many years could he have been great? Right. You know? right. And, so. and then just on the human level, I mean, he right.
0: yeah, hit pretty low, but he seemed to be okay now. I mean,
2: yeah, he, yeah. He, I think they were talking about earlier this year that he was doing – He's doing better. But um yeah, I mean <laughs> my Astro obsession has gone
0: for a long okay, time. Okay, so here's so here's a good Astro Obsession. Because I don't get to talk to Astro fans about right, But right, we talked sure. about ball four. He gets traded to the Astros halfway right. through ball four. That 69 Astro team was actually really good. Yeah. And they kind of and, and and it's one of those teams when you go back and pull up the baseball reference page, you know, I think John Mayberry made his debut as the first towards the end of that year. Joe Morgan is the course right, of star second right. baseman. There's some other good players around them, and you wonder that team never won anything, right? Mm-hmm. They got traded. The Astros didn't make the postseason until 1980 with a totally different team, mm-hmm. right? And you wonder, if people understood baseball then the way they had understood it now, that team would have been in the playoffs. I mean, the National League West, they would have been competing with the Reds. They certainly right. would never have made that Joe Morgan trade. Right.
2: No, yeah, it is interesting. You know, some of the kind of parallels between old-time baseball and modern baseball is, you know, when I was, like I was saying, go back to pitching mechanics again, you know, when I was younger, we always acted like... Uh, like the old, I, you just kind of discredited the old breed of mechanics. Right. And now, as a college pitcher, you know, I, I look back on them all the time because a lot of things <laughs> very well that we can't we can't reproduce. Something I would, age.
0: something I would recommend if you haven't done this, if you haven't seen this, is there's a photo. I think it's a either live video or kind of frame by frame photo. I think it's a live video of Christy Matthewson in the 1912 World Series. Wow, this awesome. is one of the greatest pitchers ever, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back and look at your typical pitching, fill, you know, these people don't look like what you would think of as right. a pitcher, right? So you're watching this video, and he gets to a situation, a couple of times, and he gets to, and he's doing that that kind of early 20th century thing that doesn't look recognizably like pitching, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets to a point where he's got to get the guy out. And he looks like Tom Seaver. Really? For two pitches he looks like Tom Seaver. And you realize, first of all, just how how smart they were, the, mm-hmm. the great ones, but also how baseball was played differently, which you did now, the reason... You can't. I mean, I don't know what the pitch count policy is here, but you know, you're not throwing 140 pitches. Is right, right. because for you to pitch at a college level, and of course at a professional level as well, at major league level, you have to pitch hard on every pitch. Right. There's no easy outs. Everyone, it wasn't like that then. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, you could do 140 pitches because, but when you had to do it, and he could do it. So a couple times a game, and it's a strange thing. Is that sounded like Tom Seaver pitching? Wow. And there's another. If you ever watch the, 19, the game seven 1960 World Series, it's not involved the Astros, but. Um, and that's the Bill Mazeroski home run game. If you haven't watched, I just spoiled the ending for you. And this is a great game for a lot of reasons. One of which is this move where they almost pick off Mickey Mantle. And the, I've seen this. The, you know, actually. Yeah, yeah, are right. But, but there's a lot of like uh, Roberto Clemente's on that Pirates team. Right. Yogi Berra, Roger Maris are on the Yankee team. Some great players on the field. And, these guys go up there, and they all go up there with two oversized bats. They swing it twice on the on deck circle. They swing at the first pitch with a, a, a bat that you know your coach would, a, a, pardon me, a swing that your coach would correct in little league. And then Mickey Mantle comes up, and he looks like a, Mike Trout. Really, right. I mean, you, you see, oh, I, now I know why he was so good for so long because right. he really was playing a different game. Right, and, you know, now he looks all kind of caught up, but I kind of
2: yeah, it, it's you, and you know baseball kind of has that effect that whether you're watching. You know, I could be sitting here with Abner Doubleday. You know, Abner Doubleday. Side note, created baseball, or as the legend goes, right. while he was a cadet at West Park, I, know, I know, which that's
0: is phenomenal. Like, I, we don't appreciate that enough here. Like, we should really appreciate because that. someone here said, to when we were organizing this, this discussion, he said, "We're going to meet. You'll meet him at Doubleday Field." And I put it together. Like, Doubleday Field. Wow, right. that's Absolutely. exciting. Yeah,
2: we, we, we kind of. I don't know. I don't know why we don't give that enough attention. Like the Women's Army Rugby team has a shirt that says, "You know, Women's Army Rugby established 2002. I was like, oh we right. gotta get a shirt, sure, you know, <laughs> Army baseball established like <laughs> in the first year. That, yeah, right. exactly. Right. So um, but yeah.
0: It, well did he establish it when he was here or during the Civil War? No,
2: so I read I mean according and, to legend yeah, right. So I'm sure there are various legends. Right. But I read the other day that he established it as a cadet while he was on I guess their version of leave, while he was home. Um and so, I don't know. Maybe he did. I thought growing up that he established it while he was in the Civil War. Right,
0: that was kind of the story. Right, but I guess about.
2: what I was reading, you know, and, and being it's a legend, I don't know how one source right. is more official right, than all, the it's other. It's all, it's all stories right, anyway. Right, exactly, is that he, he established it. Um, I'm blanking on, where is the baseball hall thing? I don't Cooperstown, know. Cooperstown, Cooperstown, right. That's where he's from. So he established it while he was home in Cooperstown, and that's why we built the Baseball Hall of Fame there. Right. And so, anyways, I... Also, because I, there was,
0: it was good for local business.
2: Right, that too. But I, I didn't know that part of the legend. I'd always heard that he established it as a, as a colonel in the Army. But I guess he
0: carried it over, gave it to his troops, and then... Right. Also, you know, if you think about... I mean, if, if any human being invented baseball, which we're not sure that, that happened, Right. <laughs> but it's not something you do overnight. Right. No, you say, oh, your notebook and say, I'm going to invent a game-changing, a world-changing sports here. Sports here. It's going to take decades right. to think it through and... Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and especially kind of the history of it
2: here because, you know, MacArthur was on the team as well. Um, And MacArthur graduated from West Point with the highest GPA ever recorded. He was the first captain, came back to be the superintendent, Um, but he struggled as a baseball player. And he could not, you know, for someone with, with the kind of ego that MacArthur has, he could not understand why he couldn't figure out baseball.
0: And uh, He just couldn't play it or he couldn't figure it out? He, he
2: could, well, he couldn't be good. I mean, apparently okay. he, he was like a career 147 hitter. He was like the backup left fielder. Just like couldn't hit. Right. right. And, and, but he'd come back to West Point. He was the you know, top cadet, obviously going to be you know, a superstar. And then he'd get on the baseball field and just was never, at,
0: you know, MacArthur on the baseball field. Do you know this Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days? Yes, sir. Okay. Do. do you know the story behind that? I don't know the There's full. There's a great story. I read this where Bruce Springsteen wrote this story, and the main character he was a guy on his baseball team high school baseball team who was the best player on the baseball team and he never made it you know he got hurt or something he right, senior right. in high school and and Bruce Springsteen projected all the other stuff about it. like he took that and then he riffed on to what is a really sad story about growing up and your hometown and all this and there apparently there was a story where, where Springsteen went back to the bar in uh, no no the guy used to hang out at this bar in New Jersey and say that song's about me and nobody wow. believed him and and, and he also called Bruce Springsteen sad, saddie, S-A-D-D-I-E, because he was so sad at baseball. <laughs> so, wow. so he's saying, and of course for years he's saying, I'm full of shit, right? Right. I'm full of crap, right? And he says, and and finally, one day Bruce Springsteen decides he's going to go back. And he goes back to the bar. And the guy's there. Wow. And they and they like embrace. <laughs> that's an incredible <laughs> And he story. said, yeah, because in fact he was the guy. Wow, that's awesome. You know, I, I know because Because you know baseball stuff. Right. Even and and I know four
2: days because that was played... Before every game at my high school, when I oh, played really? high school baseball, that, that's how I like it's an ironic song to play before I high school that baseball crazy? game. That's especially like that. in like a small Texas town where you. Yeah, I would not be playing leaves. that song. No, that's that's sad. I, now looking back, though, I kind of get it. I think. Yeah, it's kind I of know, passive aggressive by whoever yeah, was doing exactly. that. Right?
0: Was some like biology <laughs> teacher who no, never. Right. blurry <laughs> days. I don't teach a little bit. <laughs> Come on. No. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think, Daniel, thanks a lot for your time. Yes, sir. This was a lot of fun, and. um Glad to have you do it. Yes, great sir, conversation. Thank you very much. This is great. I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. Again, this is Lincoln Mitchell. The podcast is painting the corners, when and you can follow me on Twitter up at lincolnmitchell.
1: I don't care if I